are tuned in to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason P. Woodbury, and each week I bring you a far-out conversation with an artist I admire. My guest this week is Patrick McDermott of North Americans, whose latest album, Roped In, is a true chill classic. I love this album so much. It's out on Third Man Records, and Patrick's playing guitar along with pedal steel from uh, Barry Walker Jr., and then guest contributions from Mary Lattimore and William Tyler. And it's an absolute bliss of a record. I really enjoy this. And I had a great time catching up with Patrick. Before we get into our talk though, I wanna let you know, this is the end of this season of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions, but don't freak out. We will be back very soon. We're taking a couple weeks off uh, and we're gonna get through the holidays and uh, we're gonna try to hunger down and not see anybody or do anything. And uh, we'll be back early in 2021, uh, January 20th. We'll return with a brand new episode. If you miss us while we're gone, I wanna take this opportunity to encourage you to go check out the Transmissions Archive. There's plenty of conversations there that should be able to uh, keep you tidied over while we're on break. Um, we've been doing this show weekly since March of this year, but before that it was a little bit more sporadic, but we still put out tons and tons of episodes. There's a couple conversations with, uh, Tim Heidecker, uh, there's a conversation with Jason Manzukas of, uh, how did this get made and, uh, Big Mouth and all sorts of other projects. Uh, we've got a conversation with Daniel Lenoir, uh, Bonnie Prince Billy was one of our, uh, I think our first guests actually. So there's lots of like, uh, lots of stuff to check out while you were there. I do want to take an opportunity to thank some people who made a huge difference uh, in terms of uh, us doing the podcast this year. I want to thank uh, Chad De Pasquale for, for sitting in uh, for me uh, uh, on an episode. Same with, with Ben Kramer and uh, Jesse Locke. Of course, big thanks to Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard founder and, uh, and, and editor, and he, he oversees everything that we're doing here on Transmissions, and he's always able to help us out so much in terms of I mean, pretty much every aspect of the show. I uh, want to thank Andrew Horton, who's been editing the audio. I want to thank all of our guests who have joined us this season. I feel like this show sort of became the thing that we wanted it to become this season, and uh, that has a lot to do with you all for listening. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Uh, check us out on Patreon. Check out our 2020 year in review on Aquarium Drunkard right now. We'll see you soon. Uh, stay safe this holiday, and uh, and we'll be back uh, early early in January with more strange conversations for these strange times. So thanks so much. Uh, here's my talk with Patrick of North Americans. Uh, stay safe.
right, uh, Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here on a uh, Saturday afternoon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been, you know, I've been such a fan of, of what you guys do and you in particular for, for a long time. So it's a fun meeting of the minds. It's, uh, Man, that's uh, that's really, really uh, that's really kind of you to say, and I'm definitely uh, a big fan of of the work you've done as North Americans. I especially like this this new one. Uh, what's it like putting out a I don't know an album in this this year where so many of the normal trappings of the album you know release process are uh, sort of excised from the conversation. Yeah, it, you know, it it was super interesting. I I. I think, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs mentally with it, you know, just to feel like, I think the first and foremost for me, it was just like, is it, is it worth, is this just the time to release music? Does it feel selfish? Does it, or does it feel needed? It, you know, it's weird. You get in your head about like the, the, the map, the like larger implications of the release, you know? Um, but I think ultimately I was, by the time it finally, you know, came down to it, I was really excited to put it out and having, I think a support system like third man opposed to doing it myself was a huge reason why I felt confident and comfortable getting it out into the world during such a, a tough year, um, for, for everyone and also the music industry as a whole. Um, but, uh, it was certain, it certainly, you know, still had every day, you know, you'd be about to be like release a track and something just horrible would happen in the news cycle. And you'd be like, geez, is this the right well, moment? Sure. Sure. Um, um, but you know, at the end of the day, I, I think there was, there were some weird things I didn't expect to happen. You know, like I remember right when the pandemic hit, there was this huge, like, Oh wow, what's going to happen to record stores. And there was this big dip in record sales as stores closed. And then it, it started to really trend upwards. And then I've had conversations with friends and stores and, and distros are being like, this is the best stretch yeah. we've ever had. Um, and that was one, you know, I'm, I'm assuming there's lots of new collector, new, new, you know, new record player owners, et cetera. And so with, with third man early on, it was clear a big part of their strategy is to, to sell the physical vinyl, to get this into record stores and use kind of the relationships they've built with record stores. And so that was an intriguing one to me, you know, in a year that's, that's so strange and we're, we're also reclusive. There was something exciting to me about, you know, getting people a physical disc and, and really working towards that is like kind of the main uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, and they, they did a wonderful job with that. And yeah, I know we can't leave for, you know, I'm sure some, I haven't been to a record store actually during the pandemic, but I know there's, there's plenty of spots have been open and, you know, I'm sure record hunting is a bit different, but it seems like a lot of people still, you know, have been very interested in, in collecting and adding to their collections. And so, um, you know, that was a rewarding part and, and an exciting part to me. The, the, this record has, the physical edition of it has such a cool feel to it. Uh, the art plays a really big role in that, I think. Uh, yeah. Brian, uh, is it Blomerth? Is that how you pronounce his name? Yes. Uh, yes. You know, like looking at at th- this record, and uh, uh, he he's he's done he did the art for Going Steady as well, right? He did. He did. When Correct. I look at this this album cover, um, you know, I really get a sense of maybe the the vision for the vibe that this record is supposed to convey you know um i see mm-hmm. that there's something about it the quality of it uh that's really blissful and it's really colorful um but it's also it's also kind of muted in its own way and it's uh 
I don't know. There's something about it that conveys that maybe you don't take things too seriously. And I mean that in like a, a complimentary way because uh, with music that is as beautiful and as um, sort of um, vibe-centric and relaxing as, as music you make, I, I can imagine that like there's probably a, a, a certain temptation to maybe uh, go like a minimalist, very uh, very avant-garde, very serious approach. But but it seems to me like that's not exactly w- where your head is at. Uh, what you know? What spoke to you about his art style in terms of uh, putting it on the cover of, of you know your record, something you've worked so hard on? Yeah, I mean, you really hit the nail on, on the head there. I mean, I think with it dates back to the previous record with Going Steady, but you know. I, having worked on a lot of ambient releases with my label, Driftless Recordings, um, it was, I personally, you know, feel like I've been kind of in on the ambient scene for like the, re- the revived ambient scene for a while. So it's like, you're, we were putting out a lot of content like that. And we were admittedly doing a lot of these like classic minimalist covers, these Wyndham Hill, um, you know, added these like landscapes or some beautiful geometric looking art or some hyper minimalism stuff or and i as much as i i love that artwork and a lot of the art that populates um a lot of ambient music and instrumental music that was the first thing i i really was like wanted to buck the convention on with the last release um and brian's art really really spoke to me and my favorite kind of left field version of this was I've always been in love with Michael Hurley's album art yeah. over the years. And so he was my first, my first touchdown where I was like, this music to me, I mean, Michael Hurley is, has plenty of aspects of his, his um, career and writing are kind of in jest and have comedic elements and are more are, are less, you know, self-serious, I guess, as, as you sort of put it. And so I, I definitely wanted to break free of those conventions. Like my ethos with the music I make is that it's, it, it's it's pretty accessible. It's pretty simple at, at its core, and I didn't want it to feel like it was this, you know, museum gallery art house type type thing. Even though I'm I'm happy for it to be put alongside those records or or considered to be part of that genre, but in reality, I didn't. If I, I said it to Third Man to outset, like I've really tried to even just buck ambient as a term. I um, not just to be a contrarian, but I I just didn't. I'd rather it be considered instrumental music or, you know, cosmic Americana or, you know, something that's not just ambient. Um, even as someone who I, I has made more traditional ambient music in the past, I felt different, you know, playing guitar, collaborating with people, which is such a, a big part of the project. And, uh, so I was just, I was definitely heavy handedly trying to break free of that with the art. And, and Brian was such a willing partner. And all I do with him is give him some very loose references. And he has such a, great sort of sense of world building on his own. And he just has done incredible work every time I've asked, asked him and it's always really been fitting. And, you know, I really look at him, look to him as, as part of the project at this point, you know, I I don't think either release um, would have done nearly um, as well in the little micro communities that it has without uh, his art attached to it. And I think a lot of people, it informs the listening to them. It's, it's a world that they want to, you know, engage with and and that's really exciting to me i want to get into a little bit of the collaborative nature of the project but but i I don't i don't think i'm done talking about the visuals yet because i'm I'm really because i'm really curious about how uh i mean is does the does the frog guy 
that was featured in the videos uh, uh, for the previous record. Um, does th- does that character have a name? <laughs> he, he doesn't. I think we just call him like Stoner Stone Frog. Or frog I mean, or, or something along those, <laughs> along those lines. What, <laughs> how, how did how did that um, how did that guy kind of kind of show up in terms of of your collaboration with Brian? I, I'm I'm always fascinated when like you you know. Um, the, the visuals, you know, are, are such a conscious choice that you have to make when it comes to an album cover, you know, you have sure. to make the decision like, this sure. is what I'm going to put on the front of this thing that is, in a weird way, it's going to speak for it in such a such a clear declarative, you know, tone. Uh, and so it feels like it signals so many things. But that frog guy, I just really, really fell in love with the frog guy on the on the last cycle. And I was curious how 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 he came about. And uh and, and how you went about sort of uh, inserting him into the the real world, as it was, as it were. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it. It's a great question. Um, at its outset, I, I didn't outline really any direction for that character from Brian, but since he's so, you know, if you look at his art in general, it's it's heavily populated with characters. That's his whole his whole thing. But I remember when he sent over the initial cover, it was uh, the that frog is part of the original cover. And then we zoned in on that being like, this is just the most intriguing, ridiculous character of the group. And so we focused him, the insert art is this very beautiful piece of the frog riding this trout. Um, it's, it's an incredible image. And uh, we, you know, whether it's like the kind of the North Americans, the, I don't know, the strange, like um, kind of American affiliation wearing the strange American flag garb. It's just this eccentric, strange character that, that honestly made, <laughs> it makes pretty little sense, but he was, it was something that I think we, we were all drawn to. And then my buds who were making the videos, we were like, it'd be really interesting to put one of Brian's characters in this world. And that since we'd already sort of started to push the focus to the frog, we we're like, we got to go there. Right. And, uh, so then it kind of took a, it was, took a life of its own. It was really amazing. I had a, had a friend kind of model and, and rig the frog from a 3D perspective. And then the, the director's, and animation team just kind of like had him ambiently float around <laughs> these environments. And uh, yeah, it gave a, a lot of life to it. Um, and I think, you know, we were sort of playing off the riff of like some of these, you know, filters on Snapchat and Instagram of like inserting a 3D character into the world, but we wanted to do it in a little bit more of a, a nuanced way and, and an artful way. I think they did a great, a great job, but um, and then on this record, we, I made sure he made a reappearance. I didn't want to like, you know, focus, <laughs> focus on him per se for, for roped in, but we made some awesome alternative, uh, cassette art. So he's like the cover of the cassette and, uh, snuck in kind of as an Easter egg in, in a few spots. You, you wanted, but, um, you wanted to uh, expand two- the North Americans, uh, visual universe with this album. And then, so you got a nod to him though. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure there was some continuity because there's, you know, and I feel like my hope is you know, at least one more that sort of like rounds out a, a sort of a trilogy of music that's really similar, um, you know, similar in format, similar in, in the, you know, it's the music's kind of built on some restrictions and rules and, you know, that having them built all um, in Brian's world is important to me. So I think having some carryover amongst the music that I feel kind of lives in this canon is, uh, is having some visual link, you know, outside of just obviously his art is incredible, but having some characters kind of sneak between all records is certainly a, a goal. You, you mentioned that there are certain restrictions and rules that you place on, on yourself for, for this project. Um, 
how did you go about developing the, those rules? And, and you know, I, you don't have to divulge what they are because I don't want to ask you to give away any artistic secrets, you know, but, uh, but, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm curious, you know, how, how does sort of creating like a, a context or a framework for this sort of stuff to live in, you know, what does that allow you to do artistically sure. that, that maybe would be harder to get to without any, you know, sort of uh, guidelines in place? Sure. So it was kind of an interesting, like mini, like personal creative breakthrough. And it stemmed with, you know, again, similarly to this sort of like, um, obsession with breaking from the, the straightforward can, or the, the kind of topical ambient conventions. I, with Driftless, we had been doing these ample ambient compilations, which I loved. And it was basically a home for artists that might not normally make ambient music or release ambient music to kind of give them an avenue to put some stuff out. So like, People like, you know, our friend Jack um, Tatum from Wild Nothing, you know, just people that you would, I knew that they tinkered on this stuff, but it wouldn't make their album per se, you know? Um, and so that was a great start. And then I started to be like, I want to push this in a different direction. And so we, we worked on an instrumental compilation and I set some rules to that where it just has to be a single instrument performance, like no overdubs, no um, like heavy reverbs. It's just, I just would love a straightforward performance, you know? We had piano and cello and um, guitar performances, 12-string guitar performances. And I, I did one, and it was the first time I went back to guitar after making my first two records under the moniker North Americans, which were much noisier, heavier, kind of like drone ambient albums. And, and I started working on this little drone guitar piece, and I was like, wow, I just really, I love making these, these little guitar loops. It was, it just really reminded me of why I liked playing guitar in the first place. And making that track for that compilation inspired me to be like, I want to explore this, you know, more than just a single guitar take. Um, but I wanted to explore it further, but still the simplicity and the restriction was born from that, like li just one small little track on this instrumental compilation. Um, so I started just writing a ton of those little, little kind of like the, the standard kind of like drone progressions you hear on both records. But if, I, I knew I wanted uh, collaboration and, and another layer or two. And so for going steady, the kind of like framework was I was going to do a guitar drone and then a synthesizer drone and then use a collaborator to fill out that third yeah. part. Um, and on that record, that was mostly Hayden Pedigo, who is just an incredible guitar player and a great friend. And we put out two records of his on Driftless and, you know, he hadn't been to Los Angeles, just flew him up, stayed in my apartment, and we just like cranked away on on what basically became that that record, and then added some more friends and collaborators, just mostly selfishly because I've just come to know some incredible people here in in LA, and I, I just it's hard to not want to just <laughs> reach out and, and share the a musical you know moment with them, even if it's so simple. And like you know, Juliana Barwick has become a great friend. You know, she came over. It's probably 45 minutes of you know laying down a, a simple synth overdub, but it, it, it adds a lot. And um, a big part of that spirit of the project is is pushing for the performance to be pretty improvisational um, and not overthought. And even from my perspective, like I tried to restrain any um, direction and also any like uh, critical feedback. I didn't want to change the parts, even if it was like there's definitely moments in the back of my mind was, you know, I don't actually don't love this part so, so much, but I would just leave it. And then it, I learned and lived to grow, to love that addition. But that was an important part of the spirit to me of just 
I chose that person and I gave them, I wanted their creative freedom to sort of be on display and it, it always worked. You know, it was, it was really a wonderful, fun part of the process. And for me, it took, you know, you can go crazy micromanaging every decision. And of course you can spend infinite time tweaking and altering music, especially when we can make it at home on our, you know, on our little MacBooks and just tweak away forever. And I, I wanted the exact opposite of that, um, to capture a more, um, direct performance and, and that extended to roped in. And then this time the collaborator was Barry Walker. who's just truly, truly special pedal steel player and, and guitar player and, and vocalist and, and, uh, you know, makes incredible music in his own right. But we had also put out a, a record of his on Driftless and, I had just become really, really interested in his style of, of pedal steel. I, I was blown away how unique he made the instrument sound without drenching it in reverb, like the, which I find to be the more classic uh, use of pedal steel as an ambient. Well, sure. You now it's got infinite sustain, so you know, let's make it this this beautiful kind of um, just endless soundscape device. And so Barry tends to not do that, and so it felt like the perfect match where i i really like i try to almost use no reverbs in the mixing phase it's like joel and other and anyone who's collaboratively is pushing me to do more and more and i like always just want it to be just what was was recorded and, and we for the most part stay in that in that lane and uh yeah so the those kind of simp simple collaborative rules of just not trying to overstep like we didn't i had some little ideas for barry here and there but there was no you know, we never edited the track down. We never changed the take. It was just what what came out of his head and, and went onto the steel and went onto the recording was what we stuck with. And um, it's crazy. We You know, we weren't in the same room or anything, but um, it, it worked out really swimmingly to my ear. It, it really feels like, you know, it's funny, like listening to it after making it, but also taking these long periods of time between listens. You know, it feels like a pretty organic collaboration to me. And it's it's a uh, almost strange thinking back that we we did this separate. Um, yeah, you wouldn't you you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't think that at all listening to it, you know, because it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like a prescribed thing that you wrote out and sent to him, you know, and sort of like this is what I it it, it you know it feels generative and it feels kind of in the in the moment. You you've got on this record as well, uh, Mary Lattimore and William Tyler, uh, both of whom yeah. have. Uh, contributed like theme music to this podcast at various points uh so we're big fans obviously um <laughs> yeah you know yeah. and then uh, you've already mentioned juliana you know barwick you had meg duffy on on the previous one yeah w what do you what do you look for in a collaborator uh when, when you're thinking about this project you know and i i don't mean to be like overly romanticized about it but a lot of it is just the friendship aspect of of things. I obviously these people are incredible players and capable players. So of course that was the, the bar is already there. Like these are incredible musicians. So it, it was so easy then to just be like people that I'm already, you know, chatting with and are part of my life and, and really interesting to me as humans made it just that much easier opposed to like kind of reaching out. I've certainly done this in the past, but the kind of like cold email, try to find someone down that you've never, you've never met, you've never, you know, hung with and just hoping that they provide you a little overdub or whatever, you know, that, that was less appealing to me. Um, and, uh, you know, with William and, and Mary on particular on this one, I, 
I will say like with the nylon string guitar, like that was a, that was a, a, a choice that the outside of the record was I wanted to play on a nylon string opposed to a steel string, just because the rules were similar. I just wanted to change the instrumentation a little, you know? Um, and I've always, the second I started recording the nylon string, I was like, man, harp would sound so cool uh, against this, this sure. style of, 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 of guitar. And especially Mary's playing. She, again, I think is a really unique, um, harpist and, and the like little delays and kind of the, her signature sound I, I felt would be perfect. And she did an incredible, incredible job. Um, and with William, I knew I wanted similar to Hayden's role on the last one. I wanted like this other layer of more traditional, um, American primitive virtuosity. You know, that's something that I don't, uh, pursue in my approach to guitar on the same level. I mean, they're just straight up better than me. And, and so it's fun to, to collaborate with people like that. And, and, you know, having William over, it was just so fun to watch him play. Um, so, so yeah, I think the, the friendship angle and just knowing that these people were I, people I really looked up to and already sort of like had a rapport with meant a lot as well. Um, and that goes with Meg who's become a great pal. And, and so, so yeah, I think that, that camaraderie is, is a really big part of what I look for in making music. And while I don't, you know, especially now I would have loved to play more shows and stuff, but, um, you know, it, the pandemic had its, had a different plans, but that's sort of my version of the band, the feel like what you miss, uh, what I miss of that collaboration of being on stage and being with people. It, this was, this is a way to, to at least share some human connection on during the recording yeah. process. Yeah. What was the, what, what was the first stuff that, that made you want to play guitar, Patrick, uh, you know, early on, what, what was the stuff that sort of turned you on to the instrument? Uh, so my dad was, uh, uh, a musician, I'm still, you know, still, still very much a musician, but, um, I just, I grew up around, he's a great guitar player and singer and, um, his, his music career took some, some really wild turns. The main, the main like touchstone is he, um, toured and wrote and played a lot with this songwriter, this incredible songwriter, John Stewart, who is in the Kingston trio. And then he wrote daydream believer, which the monkeys covered. And, you know, a couple of incredible songs in, in the seventies and eighties, gold, which was a decent hit and runaway train with Roseanne cash covered and stuff. And so he had this, this really special run with this guy and, uh, who was a big influence on, on my life. And I'm actually working on a reissue of his, for, for Driftless, which I'm really excited about. But um, uh, so my dad always had the guitars around, so that was always there. Um, but it is, you know, for me, it is interesting looking back. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I, I, I wasn't exposed to like tons of experimental music or left field music, right? Like I, I didn't have that experience as like a 14 year old. I wasn't, you know, pulling up these, these wild records. But what I did have is, you know, some deep roots in, in Doc Watson and, and some incredible uh, flat picking guitar players. And, and even I think, you know, in when I got into, you know, from Boston, classic rock stuff was like going to be impossible to avoid. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I, I still, I still leaned towards the guitar players and, and me and my brother always had these like funny interests, you know, we we're just like a lot of New Englanders. We were big into the jam band stuff and weirdly into the, the ridiculous guitar player, like kind of triumvirates of like, Eric Johnson and Steve I and Joe Satriani and these kind of like the virtuosity thing. I was still some G3 stuff at wow. a young age and G3 got it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, we the, you know, the DVDs and, 
it was just like a it's a strange era but we always gravitated towards it and then like you know my brother got into like the chapman stick this like very weird instrumental instrument and all sorts of we were just kind of that that like jam music that was influenced by you know kind of folk bluegrass it was the stuff that i sort of was connected to and then by the time i was a little older and you know i found the music that i truly you know probably was craving at that time but whether it's just like you know the Fahey's to like a lot of the, the contemporary, you know, Lauren Connors or uh, Amaris Anderson, you know, a lot of the guitar players I love so much now. Um, it took me some time to still find that stuff. But uh, I think that was always seeking that, seeking that out. And even for me, I got into like, it's like the early YouTube, like virtuosic guys, Don Ross and Andy McKee, and, you know, these kind of like very virtuosic instrumental guitar players. And, um, it it was I still look back on that era fondly and uh but I think that's what I felt comfortable with my guitar playing style, which was like, you know, a bit more open tunings and Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it I would I think it laid a level of foundational like respect for the instrument and stuff. But then by the time I was making weirder weirder music, I was still composing a lot of it on guitar. Like a lot of the early records I made that sound like kind of just like drawing heavy synth i was still like starting with guitar and kind of destroying it or, or messing with the audio and stuff and so it's always been the core instrument that i've had the most interest in but i think like a lot of guitar players i've you know heard this read this i just started when i picked it up i just hated how it sounds i hated how i played it i didn't i felt so redundant you know my skill set felt limiting and so i think i just i ran from it um for for a long time you know 10 years i would still pick them up pick it up but i i just didn't connect with it in the same way um and it i don't it was whether it's instrumental comp or just finding some tunings i liked better or finding music that was inspiring me more it just i i got back into it and now i, I can't imagine um you know not having this this revival with the instrument so um I, I also think that when i think back on this i can like picture these like mediocre South by shows I was playing with like a laptop and I was realizing like I, the noise music stuff that I loved so much, I hated the live performance aspect and I couldn't get the set to a place that I liked it. And so I was like, all right, I have to play something again. I can't use this computer. Sure. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, uh, so that, that, that forced the issue. And then I just, I think I did find like my own little personal sort of renaissance um, with the instrument you know you 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 kind of had have already referenced like american primitive guitar and stuff was that there was a point where you felt like you sort of uh did that point you in directions that you hadn't really considered uh and what was some of the stuff that led you uh into that genre yeah i mean i think you know probably just leo kaki in the first place he was probably the first guitar player that i really really connected with um I, I saw him in san francisco and i was going to school up there and it was such an incredible show and i think that kind of started me on my journey more standard you know fahey kotki stuff and then like some instrumental scores you know that neil young's dead man score and even i think you know neil was always my benchmark for guitar playing and you know whether he still to me whether it's on songs that still had lyrics like guitar was so central and um those that sort of world that was on the edge of classic rock was still kind of like where i my entry point Ka um might yeah, have been but kind of fits into there right because it's like he was a dude who had some yeah some like rock fm you know hits even you know so that and so totally. you got that and then 
you know, even stuff where he sings sometimes. I know not everybody likes his voice. I, I like it quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. And then I'd say, you know, there's another version of it when I fell in love with yeah. Robbie Basho. Yeah. Um, and that was really big. And then honestly, like I, I think I was just, I was at the right age and the right time, you know, I was living in New York and, and around kind of the sort of indie renaissance. And so I, I just looked to a lot of the contemporary people. I mean, William, Chris Anderson. I mean, I really, they, I, I probably have more listens on the contemporary players than I do on the classic ones. Yeah. You know, yeah. Outside of a, a, a few. And that was just my experience um, with it. Um, I, I, they're definitely, you know, Hayden really helped me find sort of my sweet spot with it. Like this, you know, probably my most listened to, um, kind of like record that, that is the most important guitar playing influence for me is this Papa M record live from mm. the shark cage. And, you know, it's this very specific style of instrumental playing that's not rooted in the American primitive, uh, kind of like song book either but it's like when i found out like oh wow like lauren connor's papa m there's these people making the guitar music like that's more than what i heard in my head i was so sure. excited you know? absolutely um but i definitely feel like i was behind like the musicologist friends i know the people that truly have studied this and have the collections you know i i've i look up to them you know and I, i've never considered myself as such so i even you know i'm in my mid, you know, 34 now, it's like, I'm just starting to make the music that I, I wanted to make, where maybe some people find that a little bit earlier in their process. But, uh, you know, so a lot of it was, was based on the contemporary influence and having these pals, like, show me some incredible stuff that I sort of missed along the way. And now, a word from our sponsor. Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers. Using it, you can develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to your exclusive community, premium content, and a chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. Sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and start building the steady income stream you deserve. And now, back to Transmissions. Where, where did you where did you grow up patrick before uh making your way to what, what's what's the trajectory as far as like your 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 geographic locations yeah yeah so i i was born in washington dc and lived there till about sixth grade and then we moved to boston so i think when people ask the question i most you know my high school years were in boston middle school and high school and so that was the form yeah place. Yeah. um and uh i went to school in vermont which University of Vermont, which was again a, a really wonderful formative place as well musically, and, and it yes there is there's aspects of the community I sort of lamented at the time, and I don't really it's hard for me to even uh, some people are better than others I guess like remembering their mindset like I struggle to like 
really even know what I was searching for <laughs> when I was 19 yeah. or whatever. Um, but, but I remember it when I look back on Burlington, I mostly remember that I could walk into the, the like, you know, this place, Manhattan pizza, like generic little shitty bar venue. And I gave them a burnt CD with a few songs. And, you know, the one day later they, they said, come on down on a Saturday night and play for 150 bucks and unlimited pizza and beer. And, you know, that is so supportive. Like they, I, I didn't deserve any money, let alone like that community has a culture of, of performance, you know, and they value it. And it was, it was cool to have that. And so like, I just started kind of was on the like local, you know, mediocre musician circuit, but it was so pop. The atmosphere was so positive and the venues that you would play at made you feel at home. And so it was such a great place to like initially kind of get my, get my feet wet, you know? And, um, and then, you know, I still see and some incredible shows and speaking of like jam, you know, jam centers and like virtuosity, you know, that runs supreme in these zones. And like, yes, there's some, so I, when I was there and like, you know, I went to school from 2005 to 2009, it was like the worst hybriding. It was like, I feel like Burlington's music culture was like, we have to mix like electronic music with right. jam music and like reggae <laughs> and whatever. And so it was like, it was like this bad amalgamation of stuff but then there were still some incredible uh incredible aspects like this there's this one night called honky tonk tuesday at the radio bean which is still an incredible venue like kind of the left of center venue in in burlington and uh, every tuesday just these truly truly great um set of musicians was kind of the core band and they play just kind of the country songbook and i've always been huge you know, classic country music fan, and uh, they would just do it so well. And you're in a room of, I think the cap in there must be 35 people. It was just a small little side bar type thing. And you know, Mike Gordon would come sit in and fish or whatever. It was like that. It was a kind of a touring guy, Mark Richardson from Sunvolts, and you know, kind of like the spot where the local guys that and girls that were just great just knew this was a night. Yeah. Plan. Yeah. Um. So so like I look back, New England wise, like. It's a weird place, man. Boston has so much live music, but it's, it tends to not be like, it's like cover bands and tends to not be the most progressive, but like there is for better or for worse, there's just a ton of live music and a ton of interest in it. It's just like part of the culture there. I mean, I, I felt like I lived by more seven night a week music venues in Boston than I did in, in New York. You know, I just didn't happen to have like the same pedigree of, of, of new music. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely I absolutely feel like I, I get a fee. I yeah, I kind of understand that to some degree, you know. Um, having really spent like spent spending time playing music uh, in a city that's not a, like I yeah, you know, I live in Phoenix, so it's not exactly. Um, yeah, I don't want to denigrate where you know where I come from or anything like that, but you know for whatever reason, it's not usually considered the musical center of the world or anything, you know, and that's that's fine. But sure, I think that sure. what you're talking about playing for a pizza restaurant, you know, and, uh, a little bit of money and, uh, well, 150 bucks is not bad for, for early gigs. You know, that's pretty, that's pretty good actually. Yeah. Um, did so you feel like there was a, do you feel like you picked up habits, uh, creative habits that are, uh, continue to help you along by kind of immersing yourself in the thing, even before you necessarily knew, uh, what you were doing? Definitely. I mean, I think that my kind of like earlier, you know, I just sort of like fronted like pretty bad folk Americana band. Sure. Um, <laughs> and 
and I think, but that informed, I, I mean, I, at the same time, like I look back, there's just some incredibly special moments. There was a lot about friendship and, and there was, there is still so much support of in both Boston and, and Vermont of like, just kind of a small groundswell of interest, but mostly just pals. And I, I'll never, I still will never forget that aspect of, of things. And especially since it's so in the family, you know, when I go home, we're jamming, we're playing down by the river. We're, you know, it's the, the, the trope of it all, but it's still such a special yeah, experience. That's fantastic. Um, um, so I, I've always valued that, um, just the human experience part. And, and it's, I've also like, I've been on that roller coaster. We've all, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us in different ways, but like I used to be a lot more cynical and a bit more opinionated and this and that. And now I'm at maybe, you know, getting slightly older, right. It's like embrace things a, a bit more. Like I've, I've certainly been, shows in boston or something where there's just so much enthusiasm versus like being at a show in la or something where it's like most of the music industry people sort of like lamenting what's sure. going on around them and i know that's that's also a trope in its own way but i i realize it now it's sort of just one of those true uh <laughs> sort of uh um what's the word i'm looking for stereotypes i guess where um you know there there's something can be lacking at times and there's some purity to just regardless of the music just kind of the spirit of it um in these these you know less than industry center yeah towns. yeah uh, but but that's my that's my personal experience with it and i have it you know toward the globe and, and done you know th this project has always been smaller than the ability to like really play out a ton maybe that's changing and stuff and and i have but i definitely look back on like the little things that we did and the little accomplishments and the the support really fondly of the earlier kind of era but i think the main thing that uh i have always been super insecure about or sort of aware of is but i think what mostly was a good trait is like i realized pretty quickly that i wasn't cut out for that i, I wasn't gonna be jason isbell or something yeah you know? like i i knew that my, my chop my songwriting chops weren't there and it's not to say like Oh, you should just give up. It was like I reassessed. Like that's just not my strong. That's not my strong suit. I mean, I could I could go the rest of my life without writing lyrics ever again, probably. Um, but I refocused and and found something I really love, and I it's still scratching the same exact itch. But I've definitely seen a lot of peers and certain people from these more middling scenes where it's like that realization never quite hit them. Um, and I, maybe I, I was just fearful. I didn't I didn't want to be like you know, 20 years into like the Boston music thing attempts and still just be kind of at the same exact uh, spot or something like well, that. Well, sure, um, sure. But I, I, you know, just kind of self-edited pretty quickly. I was like, this, this wasn't, this wasn't my, my path per se. And, and I'm glad I noticed that. Yeah. I mean, I have to imagine that that opened up, I mean, just the, 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 the mere recognition of saying like, okay, I don't know if I figured out what my thing is, but I do have a pretty good sense that it's not this other thing, you know, like that's a really helpful, that's yes, a helpful realization. Yes. And I think that's the kind of realization that sets you down a path, you know, uh, it's maybe trial and error, but I really don't know if there's any better way to get it figured out, you know, than, uh, sure. than discarding the stuff that doesn't work and embracing the stuff that does, you know? I mean, I think that that's a really interesting it sounds, it sounds really simple, you know, um, and it sounds like a real like evident sort of maxim, you know, just like, yeah, do the stuff that <laughs> sure. works and don't do the stuff that doesn't work. But 
in music, I don't know. It takes it takes a while to get that figured out sometimes. Uh, but it sounds like you spent a pretty. Uh, it sounds like even as you were figuring that out, you were you were sort of accruing some some skills and figuring out stuff that uh, has has led to this point. When did you when did you move out to, to L.A.? How long how long have you been out there? So n- now I think like it's a it's a funny thing when I get confused on this one because I basically I I moved from New York to here and then I got a job back in New York and captured <laughs> tracks and I went yeah, back for okay. it and then I I only lasted about ten months and came right back <laughs> so it's like there's this brief little return to the East Coast but I'd say about okay. six years now. Um, and I've always had this this deep east, uh, uh, sorry West Coast connection because my mom uh, lives here and is um, born here and my my parents met here. Um, my dad lives in Boston. My mom lives out in the desert in Palm Springs. But you know I'd been coming here my whole life. It was always the goal. You know I I loved I preferred it. And there was still kind of the, the you know mysticism of LA and like the, just grass is greener. Like I knew I wanted to get out of the East Coast. But uh, genuinely and it's proven to be true. And my my, my the kind of like generic trappings of, of quality of life and the pacing, like I just, I prefer. And so I was kind of hoping to push myself here and it, I, I couldn't have done it with the commit, the friendships and the industries kind of like initial gigs and, 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 um, everything that came out of New York. But personally, I just was never all that happy there. And then I came here and, um, it just allowed for a, a different sort of headspace. So I, I really, I really love it here and have felt, like I moved around a decent amount, you know, my family's bi-coastal, but like, you know, at this point, LA is home and, and California feels like home, the, the most home that I've, I've had in my life. Uh, what do you, th- what do you think, what do you think uh, it is about yeah. the place? I mean, you mentioned the, the pace of life and stuff. What, what is that? Uh, what does that look like for you on a, well, I mean, let's say, what does that look like for you when it's not a pandemic year and you're just hanging out inside for the <laughs> most part, like everybody's doing pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that I tend the 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 big difference was this this hybrid luxury of like I prefer you know living in a house in an apartment and having a little bit of the yard and and some of the classic you know analogs between these places and stuff and the the, the weather like it's hard to argue with that stuff but I'm a huge sucker for just like the weekender trip getting to the mountains getting to the desert getting to the beach and like those the I don't need the constant day to day, you know, two feet from my house is this incredible wine shop. And then there's an incredible bar two feet down and the best sandwich you've ever had. You know, I don't, I don't need those day to day interactions. I'm kind of more of a hermit at home anyways. And so I prefer my home base to be like the main thing. And then I, I jettison out, you know, when I start to lose my yeah, mind or yeah. whatever. Um, and so yeah, in a certain, in a certain sense, like, obviously it's way different in pandemics. We do absolutely nothing, but, but also LA offers this incredible, like you feel like you have, this a little bit version of a, of a reclusive life, but then there's all these, you know, there's Zebulon and these world-class venues and, and all these people here. It does feel like similar to, you know, I was at the latter end of the New York um, kind of indie movement. And so I was never truly a part of it. I was there in like, you know, 2010, 11, like I, people tell the true stories of like the heyday of early Williamsburg or something like that. Like I was not part sure. of that. Um, but when I, when I got here, there was, it did feel like there was a groundswell of a lot of like-minded folks living here and, I know it's, you know, it's crazy now how even in the short time I've been here, you see the prices go up and I feel like I've gotten lucky with housing and I've, I've been in good situations. And I feel like that's with these cities. It's kind of like past, you kind of have to get lucky or know someone where you 
land in an affordable situation. But um, I think there's this really nice mixture of being able to access the culture and community you want, um, but also still having this um, smaller town feel. Um, it's a weird considering, you know, when you calculate the sprawl, it's just like 20 million person place. But uh, um, it, it just, I live on this little residential street um, and it just feels like our own little um, neck yeah. of the woods, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what has the pandemic afforded you the opportunity to, or if anything, you know, has, has, has being stuck at home uh, offered you the chance to get into or dig into things that maybe you had been meaning to get around to? That's one of the things that the more I talk with people, the more I think about how this year has afforded everybody. Um, well, and not everybody. A lot of people haven't been able to hit pause at all because they are stuck you know, struggling to get through this, but, but, um, you know, has, has there been some, some time at home where you've been able to explore interests that maybe you had, you had been meaning to get around to? You know, I, I feel like I end up, I'm kind of on like the opposite end of that spectrum. I've mostly just been like trying to keep my head up and, and like obliterating my brain. To just <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I get um, that too, for sure. <laughs> um, but but in a, mostly I'm I feel like I am I'm extreme hobbyist uh, and I I have a lot of side interests so I already felt like really prepared there like I my day job is in video games I'm a huge you know gamer in general so that's an easy thing to to burn time on but um, uh, you know I wish I could have been composing more and making more music but also more so than the pandemic I think it's what I struggle with is like I had this record done and i have a whole other project like kind of like 75 percent done and more so i get i feel stymied by that i'm like wait why am i making more stuff when i like have like 18 months of stuff to put out <laughs> you know um and maybe that's a personal excuse right. more than like the daily routine but um but yeah you know i i wish i could look back and been like oh, i did more creatively during this stretch but at the same time it's i feel lucky that i've you know been able to just put out this record alone. And that was such a wonderful distraction, you know, cause it, I had me and Barry's stuff was basically done, um, in March of the previous wow, year, yeah. you know? So it's like, it was a fairly long time before we were kind of getting this together. Um, um, but, but yeah, you know, I, and I, I'm hoping, I think maybe it's just wishful thinking. I, I would love to kind of turn it a, a new leaf, um, a little bit, uh, with the new year, I think it's obviously been a hard stretch for, for a lot of people, but I've, I've mostly just kind of like stuck to the grind and work has almost been a helpful <laughs> cadence to the weeks. To just keep something going. And, uh, you know, m and my friendships here are, are such a huge part of that, even though it's mostly digital, you know, chatting away and like, I'm a huge NBA fan. So like latched onto the, like, it's like the NBA part of quarantine, <laughs> you know, when the season was going on. And, um, so yeah, I think I, I was this heavily aided by putting out the record in this stretch made me feel connected to music again and connected yeah. to that community. But uh, um, I do, I am running, you know, I think feel like, you know, you hit that point. I don't know if this happened to you in particular, but like the stuff you've loved doing, I'm really hitting that wall where it's like, yeah. I'm just pretty bored of every, every other like digging into the criterion watch list or gaming all day it's like i'm just out of ideas man it's like i'm i'm it's you know still so privileged and lucky to just be on my feet but 
you know, I'd love, I, I think I do need to figure out like, what's the next, uh, <laughs> what's the next path for it? Oh for yeah. Year. Yeah. Um, Can I ask what kind of video games you are into playing? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, you know, right when the pandemic started, I was heavily back into my, my world of Warcraft phase for, for better, or for worse. Um, very engrossing, uh, you know, kind of known for its, <laughs> it's all in, in, in consuming yeah. qualities, but yeah. For me, there is really, really nice uh, meditative aspect. It's very low, low energy, low stake, like grind away and just like level up a character in, in an RPG. But there's also still a communal aspect that's online. So um, I still seek that kind of like online camaraderie um, from it. And then more recently, it, it's been totally wild. Like um, mo- my main social connection is probably playing this ridiculous, like very bro game, uh, Call of Duty Warzone. Um, but it's cross-platform, so all these friends that I haven't, you know, I've been wanting to connect with. Like I'm a I'm a complete t- nerd tier PC gamer, um, but I can play with my friends with Xbox and PlayStation, and and it's mostly just been an excuse to jump on and and chat, you know. And so like my one of my best friends here in LA, uh, Tom Krell, whose music is How to Dress Well, um, you know, I've connected. Like we have this hilarious squad of guys, Jock Green, uh, this, like all these electronic musicians <laughs> from all over the world. Um, this incredible dude ski mask like it's just been a funny way for me to keep yeah. up the like reminds me of just like meeting up with the the friends at the bar and like meeting new people and uh so yeah the social aspect of it has been really helpful you know in lieu of actually hanging out we just you know hop on and, and shoot the shit and, and hang in there um but uh but yeah even that it's like man we've we've been doing this for a while now and uh you know we'll we'll see if there's actually a reset or if i'm just like hoping there is you know whether it's the election cycle you know it's just been such a drag so it's like um i hope that there's a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. yeah we'll see. yeah well dude it's been such a pleasure speaking with you before we go though i do want to ask one more question the opening song on roped sure. in is called memory of lunch and so i wondered if you could tell me what your last really memorable lunch was <laughs> that's a great question that was also my I stole that from my friend Tom from How to Dress Well. I have to credit him because I I, I had to ask him permission, and, and he he, okay. he blessed me with that that permission. That's fantastic. I'm glad. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> um, um, I'd say my my favorite. Oh, this is a t- two answers. So yes, two days ago, me and Phoebe, uh, my girlfriend, made an incredible loaf of challah bread, which I'd never made before, um, and so that's been the framework for an incredible lunch. We sort of had more of a brunch today. We made some hollow French toast just before we spoke. Um, so it was really good. Um, but then I got it mostly many of my lunches, lunches. We have, we have one place that's walking distance from our house. Cause we're in a pretty residential area of LA and not like, not really a retail spot. And so there's this, there's this wonderful Mexican restaurant called Tierra Caliente. And, uh, they've become our, me and Joel, my label partner and, best bud he lives there he uh he lives in glendale with his family but he has a studio on the back house of our rental here so i see him every single day <laughs> which has been a great an incredible part of the quarantine you know just life in la um he's a fellow bostonian and obviously we share the label and everything but i think we've we've probably hit that place you know for lunch respectfully you know 15 oh, times yeah. a month <laughs> times two um and uh so just, you know, the constant, they're, they're kind of this Guisado style stewed meats, kind of regional Mexican cuisine that it's, there's a few other spots in LA that I know are super 
famous for it, but he's just beautiful, like birrias and, and different uh, kind of slightly less standard meats that are stewed and, and they, they're just so flavorful and good. So constant, it's like each week it's like, well, which, which iteration of their approach do I, do I go? But I've been on this birria, this goat uh, train lately and it's just so, so good. So yeah, they're, they're my standard lunch. Like when you, when you get out of it, like we've been mostly cooking at home and doing the quarantine thing, but they're certainly the like first, the first place I go when I'm like tired of making food. Well, that sounds fantastic, dude. I appreciate you taking the time to, yeah. to talk with me about great lunches and, uh, and all the other stuff. It's been a real pleasure <laughs> speaking with you, man. Thanks for joining us here on Transmission. Thank you.